Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. We are in week four of church history. Um, I have a request if we could actually kind of get a little bit closer together because some people are having a hard time hearing each other talk because you're all so far away. Um, so I will start off with a today in church history. On October 1st, just today, in 1529, the Col- Colloquy of Marburg, which attempted to unify the followers of Martin Luther Zwingli, uh, began. It would close in failure on October 4th, while the Reformers agreed on 14 of, of the 15 articles, they remained divided over the doctrine of communion. Thus, Switzerland remained Reformed, and Germany stayed Lutheran. So they did not listen to Camper's sermon this morning about unity. And is part and one reason why we do have a bunch of Protestant denominations. Um, so that happened today on church history. Uh, so we are in week four, a recap. We had talked about, um, we had ended with uh, Arianism and the Council of Nicaea. So the Council of Nicaea was called by Constantine the Emperor in 325 A.D., he would preside over it. Over 300 bishops attended, and I gave you the quote from Subius who um, demonstrated the universality of the council and how all people came together from gif- different geographical regions to deal with the problem of Arianism. And, uh, Nicaea is near Constantinople in the east. Uh, Arianism was a major problem at this time. Arius, who the term is named after, he taught that the Word of God was not co-eternal with God the Father. The Word was the first of all creatures, a supreme being, but he was created. And the Word was present before the Incarnation. The Word became man, but the Arians did not believe that the Word had always existed. Their motto was, there was a time when he was not. believed that the Word, the Logos, did not have the same essence as God because the Word was a created being. And so then we briefly talked about the problem with Arianism is that if, if, God, or if Christ is not God, if He's not divine, then He cannot pay for our sins. So it has um, practical implications on um, believers and who Christ is. And so the Council of Nicaea would um, go into that and they would basically uh, discuss and reject Arianism. And so we will move, we will, this is where we'll start with, with the council. Um, I won't go into too much of the, how the council uh, debated and how it all worked out, but I will start with um, the creed that came out of it. But before I do, let me open us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, this body you have gathered and assembled. We thank you for the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we look to the history of your church, we um, ask to be edified and um, grown in your grace. Lord, as we look at the uh, councils this morning, help us to realize what great help they can be, but help us also to know that uh, they are not Scripture and that we would look to Scripture as our final authority for all things. Lord, we ask that you be with us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so my goal is to get through the first four economical councils and through one theologian, Athanasius, and we will see how we do. 
So first we start with Council of Nicaea, 325. So they would debate, reject Arianism, and they would um, come up with this creed uh, known as the Nicene Creed. And I will give a caveat to that. This is actually uh, not the Nicene Creed as we know it today. It is the original Nicene Creed, but would be uh, modified in a later council that we commonly call as the Nicene Creed. So I'll explain that when we get to it. So if I could have a couple of volunteers to read slides for me, that'd be great. I will call on you if you... <laughs> okay, Tim, I'll do All right, go ahead, Greg. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things are made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation descended and became incarnate, becoming human, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll stop there. Thank you, Greg. Um, let me just back up a slide to help you with this question. So, do you, anyone see a key phrase or words that would actually refute Arianism? Not made. Begotten, not made. Correct. Um, <clears throat> uh, the terms there, it's an extra biblical distinction which is extracted from the scriptures, but it was important to distinguish the Arian concept of Christ being a created being. So, Christ was not created. Um, and so, this is what the creed would do. It would refute Arianism through showing that Christ is God, one substance with God. Oh, a warning, we will probably get a little technical today when I deal with the first four ecumenical councils, but I will try my best to guide you through it and not leave you lost. And if you leave lost, then just know the four councils got it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, so they would use, uh, show that Christ was God. He was not a created being. And then um, at the end of this statement, we would have actually some almost judicial acts that Constantine would enforce. I'm going to read that last paragraph. David. Okay. But those who say that there was when, oh, I'm sorry, but those who say that there was when he was not, and that before becoming before being begotten, he was not, or that he came from that which is not, or that the Son of God is of a different substance or essence, or or that that he or that created or beautiful. These Catholic churches. Anathematized. I told you. All right, David. Good job, David. Tell us to get a little technical. All right, so this. <laughs> See? Yeah. Um, so this last paragraph actually condemns Arianism, also condemns anyone who would hold to it, and uh, shows that you know Christ is God. He is divine, not a created being. Alan? Yeah, so um, there were 300 bishops. Was it a unanimous vote? Um, Actually, I will get to that. 
Was this something Constantine edicted? It's in the creed. Constantine would follow through on it. Yes. Um, I will get to your question, Alan. Uh, so, Arius would be deposed and condemned as a heretic. He would be exiled, and those who supported him would also be exiled. So that is a government decree. Um, for the first time in the history of the church, a secular ruler would punish and condemn a Christian heretic. As a side note, um, personally, uh, heretics usually never start, start off as heretics. Um, Arius had taught everything that the church had taught up to this point except the eternal, eternal, eternity of Christ. Um, let's see. So this is why um, the church came together. It was important to deal with. The, our understanding of Christ is important to our daily Christian life. Um, and so it's important to, when controversies to come up, to clarify uh, what we mean and what the scriptures say. Um, in regards to Alan's question, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but um, for the most part, the Arians tried to slide in under while they were debating. And then one of the proponents read a um, statement of their belief and pretty much outed himself. And that's when pretty much the rest of the bishops who were in disagreement, they pretty much just all jumped on them, um, came up with the creed, and then they were exiled. I cannot remember the numbers. Um, but those who supported this creed, who were not Arians, it was unanimous. So there wasn't like a three-way tie or anything like that. Um, can't remember the exact numbers. Um, but it, the point is this is important to um, know our doctrine, know what the scriptures say, and this leads to uh, what we call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is called, it's right belief. This is what we say, this is what the scriptures are saying. This is where we get the term from. Uh, orthodoxy means, uh, oh, where'd it go? Ortho is a Greek word for right or true, and doxy means belief, so right belief. Um, so this first council and many after it, um, as like History Channel and things will say, was based upon power plays and political gain. It was really about doctrine. It was really about who God is, who Christ is, and then therefore how does that impact our life and understanding. Um, eventually this term would be called the first, this council would be called the first ecumenical council because three others would follow after it. Um, ecumenical meaning it was universal in scope. So as I read last week, we had a bunch of people, leaders from Many geographical areas all come together in one place. Um, the councils were meant to be binding on clergy, on all clergy everywhere within the empire. So that would be a, another government decree coming down. Um, uh, when we, we talk about the first four ecumenical councils, there were councils after that throughout church history. Just an overview of where the different traditions in Christian, Christianity, uh, how they recognize councils. The Eastern Orthodox Churches recognizes seven ecumenical councils, and they say they have the same authority with Scripture. The Roman Catholics hold to 21 councils, and Vatican II in the 60s is the most recent. And most Protestants today recognize only the first four ecumenical councils as having authority, but the councils are subservient to Scripture. Um, only other Protestants say that none of the councils have any authority and only use the scriptures. So 
Luther himself has said the councils can err and have erred, and that's why I said councils are helpful, but they are not on par with Scripture in terms of authority. All right, so Arius, he was exiled. The emperor required all bishops to sign the new creed or be exiled. Oh, here's my. Only two bishops refused to sign, and these two were extremely influential, unfortunately. The council left the matter quite uh, semi-unresolved. It condemned Arianism, but was ambiguous in another matter and left the door open to another heresy, which I will get to. Uh, unfortunately, though, after a bit, Constantine wanted to take back what the council did and rewrite it. Arianism would not die so quickly. So we get to our next theologian, Athanasius. So the council is passed. It condemns Arianism. And then um, the two bishops who became influential, uh, Arianism would start to make its way back. And one of the bishops, I can't remember his name, but had, he had personally had Constantine's ear. And so Constantine would actually shift his position on the Arian controversy. And so enter our next theologian, Athanasius. Um, he was born in 296. Little is known of his early life, but he became a disciple of Alexander, who was head of the Alexandrian church. Alexander was the main opponent of Arianism at the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius actually traveled to Nicaea as, with Alexander as his uh, secretary when he was 29 but he could not attend the council itself since um, Athanasius was not a bishop. Three years after the council, Alexander died, and Athanasius became bishop of the city of Alexandria. Uh, eventually, Arian sympathizers began to worm their way into the influence of Constantine. He gradually began to switch sides, rejecting what had been put forth at Nicaea. He restored Arius from exile back to a presbyter in Alexandria, and ordered Athanasius to accept him back. Athanasius would only do so if Arius rejected his teachings regarding Christ. Arius would not, and so Athanasius was exiled in 335. The city of Alexandria would not replace Athanasius as they had great love for him. Arius died ironically one day before he was to be restored. Constantine died in 337. The first Christian emperor, he lived life as a pagan, and he died an Arian. Therefore, my own position on was he really converted or not. Nevertheless, from then on, with one exception, the Roman emperors considered themselves Christians, but they would constantly interfere with church issues. Athanasius would be restored by the next emperor, only to have stormy relations with him because he refused to capitulate to anything Arian. He adamantly defended that the Son of God was eternal and was not, was not the first created being. Athanasius faced five exiles during his life, living with the monks in the desert. Seventeen out of, out of 46 years were spent in exile. The authorities constantly sought him, but they could never find him. So I have a few stories about um, the authorities trying to seek him down and arrest him. So Athanasius, he was in a boat. He was heading up the Nile River, being pursued by another boat full of Roman soldiers. When his boat rounded a bend, Athanasius ordered the captain to turn around, meet his pursuers head on. The leader of the pursuing boat, the Roman boat, not recognizing the approaching ship, called out, Hey, have you any news of Athanasius? <laughs> Athanasius himself replied, quite truthfully, he is not far off, and the Roman boat passed. <laughs> 
In another story, while Constantine was still alive, the Arians knew that Athanasius was their greatest foe, and so they began circulating rumors that he dabbled in magic. They also claimed Athanasius had killed a bishop named Arsenius and cut off his hand to use it in rites of magic. Constantine summoned him to appear before a judge and answer the serious charges brought against him. So here's what happened during this trial. Athanasius brought into the courtroom a man covered in a cloak. After making sure that several of those present had known Arsenius, he uncovered the face of the hooded man, and his accusers were confounded when they realized it was Athanasius' supposed victim. Then someone who had been convinced by the rumors circulating against the Bishop of Alexandria suggested that perhaps Athanasius had not killed Arsenius, but had still cut off his hand. Athanasius waited until the assembly insisted on proof that the man's hand had not been cut. He, he then uncovered one of Arsenius' hands. It was the other hand, shouted some of those who had been convinced by the rumors. Then Athanasius uncovered the man's other hand and demanded, What kind of monster did you think Arsenius was? One with three hands? <laughs> so, again, Athanasius, um, wit and courage. Um, I have there his name, and next to his name have word in Latin, contra mundum. Uh, one of his titles was Athanasius Against the World. Um, for the most part, not single-handedly, but a great influence in fighting Arianism, fighting the government who tried to exile him and trying to stay alive and away from the government, um, basically would, would eventually take down Arianism. And so let's see how he did it. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that the Nicene Creed from Nicaea had some sort of ambiguity and left a door open to another heresy. In the Creed, there is no distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, um, this distinction in, in creeds would come later, and out of those creeds we get a description of the Trinity. So, here is from the Nicene Creed. We do not actually have distinctions between the three persons of the Trinity. And so, a simple way to sum up how we would describe the Trinity today, we could do it in three sentences. God eternally exists as three distinct uh, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each distinct person is fully God. There is only one God. And here's a depiction. And notice, so the Father is not the Spirit. You see that is not on the outside. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But then the inside, you have the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. So that would be a simple graphic to describe the, how, we, how we would describe the Trinity without going any further than that. Because if you do, you get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's just when it re you require some ibuprofen or the appropriate. Uh... I told you, we're going to get a little technical today. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. So in, in the Creed, in the Nicene Creed, there is no distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is called modalism, which God reveals himself in three different modes. Think of like he has a mask on, and he's, he's appearing himself in, in um, different ways. But it, there's not three distinct persons. There's, there's one person. Um, there was an ambiguity present in the creed, and since it was affirmed, the Arians could say the creed was wrong, thereby allowing their position to hopefully be affirmed. So there was an error in the creed. The Arians said, there's an error. We should reject it. We should put our creed in place of that one. <clears throat> Many Christians opposed the creed for this reason, which also gave rise to the Arian position throughout the empire. Through a series of negotiations, Athanasius convinced many of these Christians that the formula of Nicaea 
could be interpreted in such a way as to respond to those who are concerned with modalism. Finally, in a synod gathered in Alexandria in 362, Athanasius and his followers declared that it was acceptable to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one substance, as long as this was not understood as obliterating the distinction between the three members, three persons. And that it was also legitimate to speak of three substances, as long as it was not understood if there were three gods. You get that? Probably not. Um, basically, it's, it's what I'm saying here. There are three persons of the Trinity, but each person is God, and there's only one God. So Athanasius would get into homo, homoousis and all that stuff, um, dealt into uh, terms. What do these terms mean? And so through argumentation and writing and, and discussion, he convinced people that the Nicene Creed wasn't wrong, but it wasn't, com it wasn't complete. And so, <clears throat> um, on the basis of this understanding, most of the church rallied in its support to the Council of Nicaea, whose doctrine was ratified at the Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople in 381. From this council, we get this creed. All right, someone read that for me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you. So this is what we commonly refer today as the Nicene Creed, but truly it is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed because the Nicene Creed from Nicaea was modified at the Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople. Um, this is the only authoritative ecumenical statement of the Christian faith accepted by the Roman Church, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, and major Protestant denominations. So we talk about unity, and there's a bunch of unity in this, in this creed. Um, <clears throat> and so, in large part, Athanasius was responsible in getting this done, getting this creed done. He wasn't the only one. There are um, three other dudes called the Cappadocian Fathers, they also had influence on defining what the Trinity is, but I can't get into them, but I will quote from one of them later. Um, and so Athanasius would not live to see the final victory over Arianism, to which he devoted most of, most of his life. He, one of his books that um, Athanasius wrote is called um, On the Incarnation, and C.S. Lewis has an introduction to the book about Athanasius, and he writes this, 
Athanasius, he stood for Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible, synthetic religions which are so strongly recommended today, and which then is now included among their devotees, many highly, highly cultivated clergymen. It is his glory that he did not move with the times. It is his reward that he now remains when those times, as all times do, have moved away. And so Athanasius is expressing that expression that I had put in parentheses next to his name, Contramunda, Athanasius against the world. So he stood against the Arians who had gained power and influence. Um, and so he's remembered for his stalwart faith of doing that. Now again, I could spend days on Athanasius, but just to give you a very high level of who he was and what he did and why he's important to the church. His most obvious effect that he has on us today is our understanding of the Trinity. Um, God is one in essence, but three in persons. Um, just a kind of a reflection type thing here. As we spend our lives singing about God, listening to sermons about God, talking about God, it seems like we should know who we are talking about. Athanasius teaches us how vitally important it is to have an orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Athanasius additionally helps us to realize we do not live by public opinion polls. By that I mean Arius, Arianism was the public dominant view of the day. Athanasius was right. He was reading the Bible correctly, but the world around him had gone mad. He had courage and conviction to proclaim the central truths of God when it was most unfashionable. We need people like Athanasius today. And so my reflection question is, um, this is, you don't have to answer this, but how much do you care about doctrine? How much does it shape how you think and, and deal with the world around us? And so Athanasius is an example for us that no matter what's going on, that those who are against the scriptures, we need to defend them and stay firm. All right. So now we will turn our attention to the rest of the ecumenical councils. This is where it's going to get a little technical, but I have some pictures for you, and I will try to sum things up as best I can. No puppets, unless you would like to volunteer. <laughs> All right, so there were some early uh, Christian uh, Christological issues that still had to be dealt with after the Second Council. So we're, we've come up to the Second Council, 381. That's where we get the Nicene Creed from. And then some other things would pop up. The theme I want you to realize is that people were struggling to define how Christ could be God and man. Just keep that in the back of your mind and then we'll, all this will make sense. How Christ could be God and man, truly God and truly man. So the first issue we get coming up was called Apollinarianism. And so right up there is a simple definition of it. Christ was God who took on a human body without a human mind. The divine mind took the place of what would have been the human mind. The word became flesh only in the sense that God took on a human body. As some have turned it, Christ was God in a bod. <laughs> All right, so here, here's a picture, right? There is no human mind. The divine mind came into the human body, but there was no human mind, okay? What do you think is wrong with Apollinarianism? Not really human. Correct. The problem with Apollinarianism was Christ was not truly human and therefore could not pay for the sins of humans. So, a really funny quote from one of the Cappadocian fathers I mentioned earlier, Gregory of Nazianzus. 
Have you placed your hope in a Jesus who was a human being but lacking a human mind? Then you yourself are truly mindless. <laughs> All right, so Paulinarianism. Christ did not have a human mind, so they're trying to deal with that. The next thing, Nestorianism. Christ was fully man and fully God, and these two natures were united in purpose, not person. They had difficulty understanding how someone with two natures could be a single individual. Um, according to Nestorians, Christ essentially exists as two persons sharing one body. His divine and human natures are completely distinct and separated. How could someone with two natures be a single individual? So here's a graphic. The two persons are separate. What's wrong with Nestorianism? Okay. If there are two persons, which person died on the cross? You know, as we go through these things, I keep thinking about it. I've heard this said many times in the last couple of years. That just because you can't think of a reason doesn't mean there isn't. And that's to impose your intellect over, over God Himself. I think that's something I always try to keep in mind when you're having these kind of discussions. Yeah. Now, I try to give most of these guys... Uh, charity at first when they are trying to figure out how the two natures relate who Christ is all right all my charity is removed after the church comes together and decides this is what the scripture is saying and then they're still adamant about their view so just keep that in mind that I don't think not that I know of I don't think any of these views when they first came out had the intent of trying to disrupt the church or anything like that they were really trying to figure out who Christ was it was only after when all the church basically comes together and says, this is what the scriptures are saying, and they stuck to their views, then that's when I have a problem with. Um, go ahead. Um, in case you think this is dry, old stuff, I hear the same arguments from Mormons, from Muslims today. This is, yeah, Jehovah's Witness. These, are, these errors are still around, which is why it's important for us to know that. Most of these Christological heresies, they came out of a desire to defend either Christ's humanity or either his divinity. But the thing is, they overemphasize one of those aspects to the detriment of the other. Yeah, that's a very good point. All right, so the problem with Nestorianism threatens the atonement. If Jesus is two persons, which one died on the cross? If it was the human person, then the atonement is not of divine quality and thereby insufficient to cleanse us of our sins. Nestorianism was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. This council affirmed the one person of Christ. All right, next heresy. Monophysitism. Mono meaning one, Phytism basically meaning nature, one nature. Keep this one nature. Christ's human nature was integrated with his divine nature, forming a new nature. Christ was from two natures before the union, but only one after the union. So the human and divine nature would create something called Chimine. <laughs> what is wrong with monophysitism? Yes. What else? Take it from the other side. From the human side. Say, say what? Yeah. Wasn't fully human. No distinctions between the natures which means he's not fully God or fully human. Christ was something more than human, something less than divine. So that obviously um, 
If he's less than divine, that's a huge problem. We recognize that. If he's more than human, then the passage in Hebrews that says he's like us in every way except sin, that wouldn't apply anymore because he's something more than us. So monophysitism, one nature, that would be a problem. All right. Now we get into how did these all get resolved? I promise I have more pictures for you to help you. <laughs> all right. After much debate and discussion, the Council of Chalcedon was convened to discuss how Christ could be fully human and fully divine. The point of Chalcedon was to protect the mystery of the Incarnation against distortions. So here is a brief uh, excerpt from the entire uh, creed. Someone read that for me, please. Definition of Chalcedon 451, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, subsistence, sorry not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God of the world, Lord Jesus Christ. Subsistence, thank you. So basically, the creed does this. It says that Christ is one person in two natures. Each nature is fully and truly God and fully and truly human. The natures are inseparable. They do not separate, they do not confuse each other, and they do not mix. Um, so theologians term this uh, the hypostatic union of Christ. Christ is, I'll read it again, Christ is one person of two natures. Each nature is truly God and truly human. The natures are inseparable, do not separate, do not confuse each other, and do not mix. This is called the hypostatic union. Um, we come against, up against our humanism mm -hmm. because we are limited and we cannot bring this together. And that's where we have to have faith in the Word and trust in God. But we're not able to bring something like that to our understanding completely. Without the scriptures, right. Yeah. How do we, so prior to creation, was Jesus fully human? Is that what this is saying? No, this is not talking about, this is talking about Christ in respect to his incarnation. He continues to be fully human. Right now? Yes. I think I got a picture coming up I think will help. I hope. Chalcedon would put up fences, if you will. Fences that we say, this is where the, what the scripture says, and we will not go any further. Okay? There are four sides of the fence. The fences are trying to preserve the natures, the person. Confusion, change, division, separation. So let me get into that. Confusion, it preserves the two natures, human and divine. Change preserves the two natures, human and divine. Division preserves the unity of the natures in one person. Separation preserves the unity of the natures in one person of Christ. So again, two natures, one person. That's what all this is trying to figure out and put together. Two natures, one person. That's who Christ is. So let me just backtrack. These four... Four fences that Chalcedon will come together and preserve actually is coming out of the first four ecumenical councils. First four, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and then eventually Chalcedon. 
So Nicaea would condemn, would condemn Arianism, which said Christ is a created being. Constantinople, which reaffirmed Nicaea, condemned Apollinarianism, which said that Christ did not have a human mind. Ephesus condemned Nestorianism, which said that Christ had two persons. And Chalcedon would condemn monophysitism, one nature, which said that Christ's human nature and divine nature integrated to form one nature. So here is a picture. This is known as the Chalcedonian box. Oh, man, that is so small. <laughs> I should have printed this out for you guys. I'm sorry. All right, let me, let me try to. First Council, Nicaea, would protect that God was truly God. He was fully God, right? Second Council, Constantinople, would protect that God was fully human. Third Council would protect the one person of Christ, and the fourth council would protect the two natures. Okay, so the four councils over history, uh, 325 to four, over 100 years, are trying to define who Christ is and, and his nature, his person. Is he God? Is he human? And so this is what the four councils are trying to do. Basically, I just want you to get out of this that the four councils in conjunction with each other are protecting who Christ is. Christ is truly God, truly human, and he died for our sins. He was able to pay for our sins because he was fully God, but the sins needed to be paid by a human because a human committed the crime against God, and Christ was also fully human. Okay, So this is called the Chalcedonian box. The first four ecumenical councils would try to figure out what did the scriptures say about Christ. All right, so I know that was a lot. Any questions? Clarifying questions? Or are you just so lost you can't even answer, ask a question? <laughs> Alan. You mentioned at the beginning uh, that uh, most Protestant um, denominations today would recognize these four councils. Yes. But some don't, and they rely only on the scriptures. Yes. Now, is it that they disagree with any aspect of this, or just that they say councils are not authoritative? It's more that the councils are not authoritative, that the, the scripture is the only authority in their life, where we would say that the scripture is the final authority, but there are other authorities that come underneath that. That makes sense? Okay. Good. Why was the Holy Spirit not part of these? That's a good question. So the Holy Spirit is mentioned in in Nicaea, Nicaea Constantinople Creed. But mostly they're trying to get at the nature of Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit has kind of been neglected in a sense, or less emphasized, I would say, as compared to Christ throughout uh, historical theology. Um, and again, most of the councils come up as reactions to heterodoxy or eventually heresy that would come up. And so this is being come up and it's being, it's an issue in the church, so we need to deal with it. And so for the most part, there are historical reactions to what's going on in history. And even if we were lost, it's not surprising that <laughs> something so incredible is hard for us for our minds to grasp. Right. Is it, um, is it safe to say that this, as you were saying, the box creates offense, right? So it's not necessarily describing exactly what the nature of Christ is, but that's somewhat incomprehensible, more of saying that if something else comes in the future, the box may need to be an octagon. So, I, I, for the sake of time and simplicity, I left out a lot of what, like, what nature means, what person means. I didn't want to get into the theology of it. But in a sense, nature means the characteristic, 
the characteristics consistent with that type of being. So human, its nature is finite. We don't know all things. Divine, it's, the nature is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, right? So these are the characteristics that consist with that type of being. And the problem was, how could you have two natures in one person, Christ? That's what they're trying to figure out. Um, and the scriptures also, I think this is listed in our confession, how it puts it, that um, the scriptures usually will attribute the nature, one nature, the divine or the human nature, to the one person. So we could say, based upon how we understand this, that God died on the cross, even though the divine nature cannot die. But because there's one person, the attributes are attributed to both both, nature, both attributes of both natures are attributed to the one person. And so for simplicity's sake, we just say Christ died for our sins with the understanding that Christ is fully God and fully human. So I didn't want to get into all the technical theology of it, but basically this is what they're dealing with over a course of 100 years or so. Also, um, no, this is 451. In about 20 years, Rome would fall. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the historical context going on. The, the barbarians are moving down in towards Rome. Rome is about to fall. Uh, the empire, the capital of the empire is in the east already. Um, but then um, the, the barbarians who would come in, most of them are actually Aryan. And so that issue would come up again a little bit in how the, church, uh, how the missionaries would actually go out to the quote unquote barbarians and disciple them. So, a lot of stuff going on that I'm breezing through really quickly. I wanted to focus on the four ecumenical councils for the most part um, and how they basically uh, try to preserve who Christ is. That's, that's the main point I want you to take from this. I will print out the box for you next week. Um, next week we will get to Augustine. And after we finish up with him, the scholars actually will say that is about the end of the early church about pretty much when Augustine dies, around that time. The early church ends, and then we actually get into the Middle Ages, which would take us up to almost the Reformation. All right, so first four ecumenical councils today. That's all we got today. So any questions before I close out? All right, would someone like to pray for us, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the, the church fathers that went before us. Uh, thank you for the fact that we need to wrestle daily with our own faith and, and trust in you. Um, but Lord God, we know that uh, you uh, sent your son for us in human form, uh, Lord, to call us, and that he is right now sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Thank you for the Spirit. I pray that we would be in the Spirit and showing the fruits of the Spirit as we walk through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.